Matei Zaharia is the original creator of Apache Spark and a co-founder of Databricks, which provides data science powered by Spark. Matei, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, thanks, Jeff. What is Spark? So Spark is a, a parallel computing engine uh, that um, runs on clusters of many machines um, and can be used for data processing. And what was the motivation behind creating Spark? Uh, basically, it um, uh, we we wanted to make it easier to process large volumes of data, which uh, you know are very common uh, both in in uh, a lot of um, uh, commercial applications, but also increasingly uh, in research. So um, at the beginning, uh, uh, Google really pioneered new uh, programming models for uh, large clusters of of machines uh, through MapReduce. Uh, but as more people started using this technology, and especially you know people who weren't software engineers necessarily or who, uh, who you know, had other skill sets. You wanted to make it a lot easier uh, to work with these kind of data sets. How much faster is a Spark job than a Hadoop job? Uh, Spark can actually run uh, quite a bit faster than uh, than traditional uh, Hadoop MapReduce um, for a few reasons. One is the ability uh, to do a lot of the computation in memory, and the other one is that the engine understands more general uh, communication patterns and and patterns uh, of uh, basically dependencies between uh, tasks in a, in a job. So uh, we've seen um, on disk with just data that's on disk, uh, we've seen it go as much as uh, 10 times faster in, in some applications just uh, because uh, it understands the structure of the job better. And uh, if you also use memory uh, and, uh, you know, keep parts of your data can fit in memory, it can be 100 times faster as well. It depends, of course, on the application. So as I understand, with Hadoop MapReduce, every operation is actually three operations. You've got map, shuffle, and reduce. And so if you have N higher-level operations in Hadoop, you actually have to do three N operations. But with streaming frameworks like Spark, you have a finer degree of granularity, and you can simply chain operations together along a directed acyclic graph. Is this correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so basically in, in MapReduce, many applications need to take multiple MapReduce steps and it's very expensive to, uh, to to pass data between these steps because you have to basically write it out to a distributed file system uh, and replicate it across three machines and then later you load it all back in. Uh, and B Spark understands you know the entire sequence of steps and can just push data uh, through between them. Spark uses in-memory primitives rather than Hadoop's two-stage, disk-based MapReduce paradigm. Why wasn't Hadoop created with in-memory processing power? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think there there were two reasons uh, for this. So first, uh, when when Hadoop and, and MapReduce came out, uh, memory sizes, uh, you know, per machine and and per dollar cost were a lot smaller. So um, the cost of memory has actually continued to fall uh, very quickly with uh, with Moore's law. And suddenly, you know, now uh, a lot more uh, data sets can reasonably fit in in memory than they did back then. Um, so that's one of the reasons. Is just the hardware back then wasn't like you know good enough and cheap enough to, uh, uh, to 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 be able to do this. But the second reason is I think the applications back then were just simpler and they were these uh, long uh, batch processing applications where in many cases you know you you didn't need to do too many MapReduce steps and um, it, the overhead of it wasn't like such a huge deal because you just let it run overnight and you know in the morning you got back an answer and that's all you wanted. Um, and again, people move towards applications that they want to be much more interactive. Like there's a person sitting there asking questions and they want to get an answer back, you know, a few seconds later. Or there's real-time data coming in and you want to, to act on it right away. Does Spark completely replace Hadoop MapReduce or are there still pockets of task where you would say Hadoop and MapReduce is a better or more appropriate tool? Mm. Yeah, so for, for MapReduce in particular, um, Spark is meant to be a, a generalization of MapReduce. So you can still do all the things you could do with MapReduce in Spark, uh, but you can also do other things, other types of applications that are harder to, to, to do to express efficiently with MapReduce. So in that way, it's meant to be a superset of MapReduce. Um, the Hadoop stack also contains a lot of other components, though, and um, uh, 
you know, these are things that Spark can, can work with and can integrate with the same way MapReduce did. So, for example, Hadoop also comes with a distributed file system, HDFS, and you can't replace that with Spark. Spark, you know, doesn't have a file system. It isn't, it's, it's only a computing engine, but you can connect Spark to HDFS and use the data that's in there. Eli Collins, the chief technologist at Cloudera, came on this show and said that batch and streaming are on opposite ends of a gradient of processing speed. Mm. What are the parameters that can be tuned to explore the different sides of this gradient? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in Spark, right? You're asking. Um, so, so basically, um, in in Spark, you can control. So you can run um, these these jobs that um, you know that that process uh, some some data. And uh, depending on how often you run these jobs, you can get either something where you run, you know, you have a large data set, and and you run a single job, a single set of of operations that processes the whole data at once, and that's a batch job. Or you can run smaller ones continuously as data comes in, and you know each time new data comes in, uh, you run a, a small job, and then you update the state and memory that's tracking whatever your application wanted to track, and that's how you can have a streaming application that keeps updating uh, state as new data arrives. So, uh, so basically, you can use Spark in both ways. The engine supports running really small, low latency jobs. Uh, it also supports running. Uh, you know, large jobs that that go for many hours and where it has to deal with things failing and restarting in the middle of the job and so on. So it's kind of this job size that's the main uh, parameter. Are Spark jobs typically run on data sets that are smaller than Hadoop data sets? I think that's pretty hard to tell, uh, actually. So those are totally orthogonal things? Yeah, I think that's hard. It's yeah, exactly. So, so there are um, you know uh, companies and organizations that use that basically use only Spark that don't don't use um, MapReduce at all, uh, even uh, you know for the large scale batch processing. And we see this especially in ones that just recently started uh, you know building say big data uh, uh, pipelines or products. And for them, it's easier to just grab and and do Spark for everything. There are also companies that have MapReduce already for some jobs and then they bring in Spark mostly for new applications which might be on, on smaller data sets where they need more interactivity. Uh, but the larger Spark jobs are you know, as large as any, um, any Hadoop job I'm aware of. So the largest cluster we've seen is uh, 8,000 nodes running you know, kind of a, just as a single cluster running you know, single jobs. And uh, the largest jobs we've seen are jobs on multiple petabytes of data that could run for weeks. So Baidu, uh, actually, I, I forgot if it was Baidu or Alibaba, but um, one of these uh, one of these Chinese web companies ran uh, Spark to do uh, uh, basically to, to transform uh, all their images into features for a machine learning algorithm, and they processed you know one plus petabytes of data over the course of a week, just crunching through it to do this. Yeah, I, I I heard the podcast uh, where you mentioned that I think a REC podcast. I think you said it was Alibaba, mm-hmm. and you said there was okay. A, yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. There, you said there was a petabyte of image processing, and it took three days. Um, do you have any estimations on the financial cost of that kind of processing? Ah, so uh, yeah, I mean it, it. It can be fairly expensive. So I think that was like a. Uh, I forget how many nodes in there that were in that cluster, but you know when you get to like a thousand nodes, just keeping them running, uh, you know, is is thousands of dollars, uh, uh, you know, per day. So um, it, it's definitely expensive. It in these companies, like uh, you know, generally they it, it's worth it because they do many different uh, applications using the same data, um, and uh, you know, it's basically there are many parts of the business that can use this. So they just bring all the data together. Yeah. And how efficient? I mean, maybe you can't really speak to this, but like, how efficient do you think the the processing <laughs> queries that they, they were running yeah. uh, to do that image processing were? Like, could they have saved a lot of cost just by like improving the the way that they were the way that they were processing those images? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I don't know too much about this specific application, but in in general, it depends on it depends a lot on the application. So basically, um, you you need to do so for this particular one. Image processing is actually very CPU intensive, and there are really good libraries out there that use uh, modern CPUs efficiently, that use multiple cores or uh, uh, vectorization, uh, SSE, uh, things like that. So you really need to use one of those libraries in your Spark job to get the best performance. Otherwise, if you just like write it, you know, kind of naively by hand, you can throw lots of computers at it, but the efficiency per computer will not be very high. Um, so I think my guess for this is that you know there are so many of these libraries that probably they are using one of these, but I, I don't know the specifics. Um, in in other applications, you know, especially if there aren't really great standard libraries for what you want to do, there's a trade-off between do you spend a lot of time engineering it and like building a super efficient library which costs you you know uh, pers- like human time uh, or do you you know you write something um, uh, quickly and then you can run it on a large data set and like see how well it really does so in many cases like people actually the 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 people time is is more valuable, especially if this is like a one-off thing that they're not sure they want to do again. So they focus on on getting something built uh, quickly, and then if it works well, and there's like, okay, we, we want to run this again every day, uh, then they focus on optimizing it. How painful is the minimum viable migration if a company has just a batch framework and they want it? They want to implement some sort of streaming into their workflow. How painful is the minimum viable migration in terms of cost and developer time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, okay. So, so I, I think that depends a little bit on whether the batch job they have is is written in Spark or is written in in MapReduce or some other framework. Um, so, if it's written in Spark, the the API, the, the programming interface for Spark Streaming, is very similar to the interface for the batch jobs. And you can often reuse a lot of the functions you have in your batch jobs and um, apply them to a stream instead. And there's very similar operators and so on. So you do, do need to learn, um, you know, how the streaming model, how it works, how's that, what's slightly different about it. Um, but you can reuse a lot of the same code. In, in fact, you can even tell it, like, for instance, like split the stream into, say, uh, 10 minute windows or something and that on my batch job on each window that's uh, that's very easy to set up um, if they're coming from a different framework then they need to uh, actually basically write their computation in spark and um, it is the, the good news there is it's possible to use for example all of the input formats for Hadoop which are all of the uh, the interfaces for Hadoop to access uh, stored data so you can still use the same data and read it and, and see it in the same form you got it there and with a bit of work it's possible to use a lot of the map and reduce functions you'd write as well but that I think takes more engineering because you have to learn all of Spark and uh, but you know but uh, we've definitely seen people do that has that simplified migration process is that a competitive differentiator for Spark uh, versus Storm or Samza yeah, I think so. I think especially, um, you know, for people who do, you know, say say you develop your analysis um, as a batch job and then you want to, to create a streaming job, or say that even you, you do the analysis interactively. So like, for instance, from the Spark's interactive shell, like, uh, you know, like the Python interpreter or something like that, and then you can type in some code in there and you can then take that code and move it into a, you know, into a job that you run periodically. So that's a unique thing about it and it's not just the migration but it's also maintaining the code after like making sure you get the same answer from your batch job and your streaming job and uh, you know fixing bugs in both of them and so on often you you know it, it's it gets pretty hard to maintain two separate systems and keep them in sync when they're slightly different so let's talk a little bit more about the differentiators between spark and storm and uh Samza, or or even uh, Apache Flink, if you want to go there. Um, what do you think would be the most interesting uh, compared mm-hmm. comparator to d- to discuss with Spark? Yeah. 
So okay, so I think there's there's like two main um, differences uh, to look at. Um, so one is uh, in terms of being a unified um, framework to do both, uh, you know, batch processing, interactive processing, and streaming. Um, Spark is the the only one of these systems that can actually do all of these things. Um, in some of these engines, you can use the same engine, say for for batch and streaming, but actually you can't combine the two in a job or like it's a different API. Uh, but in Spark, you can actually combine uh, all of them in, in a single application. So for example, some things you can do in Spark that are really hard and the others are you can take the code for your batch job and run, you know, basically almost the same code um, on a stream uh, and, and get streaming results. Or you can run a streaming application, update some state, you know, keep track of some state in memory, like what are users doing on your website. And and then start running interactive queries on that state and the same in memory data. Just just connect like a JDBC server and start running queries. Um, so that's that's unique to Spark because the engine understands all these and they're all designed to interoperate. They uh, they follow kind of the same API um, and. The second difference um, comes in on the streaming side. So if you look at the streaming side, uh, the model for stream processing in Spark is uh, slightly different from traditional uh, stream processing in, in, in some interesting ways. So traditional stream processing engines have these continuous uh, operators where you push data through and the operators are long-lived and they have state, um, you know, associated with them, and you keep pushing tuples through this, like, fixed graph of operators, and they update some state as they go along. Um, in, so, the, the, you know, that, that model is, like, pretty simple to understand, but it's actually pretty hard to do operationally because uh, fault tolerance becomes really difficult when one of these goes down, everything downstream and upstream is affected, and you need a pretty complicated method to recover. Uh, things like dynamic uh, planning, uh, like scaling, you know, increasing the number of nodes in your cluster or things like that become very difficult as well because it's a fixed graph. And also throwing in new queries or these interactive queries, as I mentioned, um, uh, is, is not really possible because you decided on this graph of operators in advance. The company that... So the, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so so sorry. So that's, that's, that's kind of the traditional model. And the Spark model for doing streaming is actually different. It's this sequence of very short uh, jobs, MapReduce-like jobs, that share data and memory between them. So it means we can adapt to changing workload patterns much more easily uh, because, you know, if, uh, you know, if we see there's a lot more data, you can just launch a job with more tasks and uh, dynamically change, you know, the level of parallelism and so on. It means it's also easy to throw in other jobs that do interactive queries or like some ad hoc queries that you hadn't anticipated before. And you get actually much stronger uh, fault recovery guarantees because it's the same like uh, deterministic uh, fault recovery that you get with batch jobs. The company that you started, Databricks, is building a data science platform based on a uh, commercialization of Spark. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. What is the describe the product offering of Databricks? Yeah, definitely. So the the product offering uh, is a, a hosted software as a service platform that makes it very easy to run Spark and uh, and in general to build a big data uh, infrastructure as a team. So the thing it provides is it provides um, uh, cluster management. It's very easy to launch Spark clusters. You know, have multiple clusters um, for different users, scale them up and down elastically, and so on. Uh, and then it provides this uh, this interactive uh, collaborative workspace on top where multiple team members can connect to one of the Spark clusters, run queries, uh, share like the, the, the outputs they produced and uh, share visualization as well. So as this interactive uh, notebook-like uh, uh, environment uh, with, with these features built on top of it. So in that podcast that, uh, the, that I mentioned earlier, the REC podcast, you mentioned that one of the unexpected uses of Spark that you saw was people who were writing Spark backends with web app frontends. Um, yeah. And so, but it sounds like what Databricks is, is it's a company that, that facilitates yep. that. Was, were you, was that basically does, like the yeah. inspiration? Like you were like, whoa, we're surprised by how many people are doing this. Let's just build a company around it. Um, that was part of it. Yeah, I think early on when we we started the project, we just didn't. Uh, yeah, we 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 
we hadn't uh, thought too much about this, but about this use case. But it makes a lot of sense. Um, basically, people do a, you know people create like a domain specific application. Like here's an application for understanding um, I don't know like um, uh, uh, you know video uh, viewers or for understanding like ad clicks on a social network or something like that. And when that application needs to run new queries, it talks to a Spark cluster and it actually can you know process a lot of data um, interactively. Um, so we we wanted to enable things like that. It's not the only thing we do though. Uh, I mean, we also just wanted to make it very easy to just run Spark. So you can just you know build a job and deploy it and not have to worry about uh, managing a cluster or configuring it, tuning it for the hardware and so on. Uh, but we were definitely excited about this. How does Databricks integrate with Cloudera? Um, with Cloudera, so the Databricks, the the product um, uh, isn't. Uh, are you asking about the product or about the the company? Uh, uh, I'm just wondering, like, if if I have a if I'm building a platform where I I have some I some of my data on the Cloudera platform and some of yeah, my data yeah. on the Databricks platform, is there any point yes. of integration, or is are they kind of mutually exclusive? Oh yeah, no, definitely there, there is. So and actually, we we see people doing that. So if you run a, a Cloudera cluster um, in um, in uh, Amazon. EC2, which is where we are right now, um, you can read data from from it into Databricks. So you can easily connect to any data source that Spark understands, including uh, HDFS clusters and HBase and all the other storage engines in there. And we also have people connecting it to on-premise clusters and pulling out data that they want to work with uh, interactively into Databricks. So Databricks itself actually, you know, uh, isn't, uh, doesn't lock you into a specific form of storage. It's meant to work with like any common form of storage that's available um, in the cloud. Um, so you can just bring in the data from all of those and combine it. Yeah, I think that's a great policy because, um, you know, one of the, I've been doing these, these uh, interviews with, you know, these big data companies and um, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because, you know, we've, we've moved to, we've developed this kind of ecosystem where you have these different uh, like big data service providers and it's really nice that it seems to be like uh, they're all <laughs> copacetic, right? They all integrate with each other well in this like nice collaborative way, yeah. and it's not like this, you know, animosity land grab type of situation. Um, <laughs> d- does that kind of surprise you? Like, just from an industry type of perspective, it seems sort of unprecedented. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of it's it, it it's not like completely the, the true, but it, but there is a lot of interoperability. I think all the vendors of these platforms would prefer if you remain more more locked into their platform. Um, and some of that happens because they have, for instance, like uh, you know they they have their own safe storage formats for data like a file format or something like that and they each have kind of their preferred one but because they're all shipping uh, you know this open source software and uh, and there are very uh, well-defined interfaces to to access this stuff it's pretty easy to use anyone's software to access sort of anyone else's data and uh, I think that's really great for uh, you know for users of the software um, and it, it basically leads the vendors to to you know they, they're not they they won't um, um, uh, you know get business by kind of locking you in, but they'll get it by actually having uh, you know a better product with something that you you really want to buy. Um, so I think it it comes a lot from the open source aspect of it. I think this never happened with say commercial databases because like the whole purpose of a database is like it's this complete you know enclosed system that's like totally you know it it only works with with that same uh, vendor more or less. Um, so if, yeah. if you have a if you have a you know, c- current like a heterogeneous managed big data stack, uh, you know you've got Confluent for Kafka, Databricks mm-hmm. for for some Spark, uh, Cloudera yeah. for some Hadoop. What is the end user, the current end user experience uh, mm-hmm. for, for for somebody somebody that is managing all these different systems at a company, and and how do you how do you project that to change into the future? Yeah, so so that's a good question. Yeah, so so managing these 
now is actually fairly complex. Um, it's um, even actually if you have a, even just a single vendor, but if you have a Hadoop distribution, it comes with many components in it. Uh, like, you know, there's one component for stream processing, one for batch, you know, you have hives for metadata, stuff like that. Um, so you, it is pretty complex. Uh, and I hope that this stuff gets uh, uh, simpler. Uh, but now basically, you know, you need to learn how to, how to manage each of them. Um, the thing, so at least what, what we're doing uh, at Databricks, but I think this will be a, a general uh, trend, is we, we kind of said from, from the beginning we're going to focus on cloud and, and on software as a service, and that allows us to do a lot more of the management kind of for you. Uh, so, you know, with uh, basically with all these cloud services, not just ours, but, you know, many of the others, uh, there's someone else who has ops people who are keeping the system up and running all the time. So you just focus on, on using it and, and uh, you know, figuring out like, you know, whatever application you want to build. So I do think this will be the main way to simplify things is you if you can um, offload uh, the, 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 the management of it to one of these cloud vendors. And then the question is how, how these are going to integrate with each other. And that's a really good question. I think, you know, there is just because people ask for it, there is a lot of integration happening, um, but um, you know that, that remains to be seen. Do the vendors have any trouble hiring enough ops guys to, to, uh, to work for clients? Well, the so the the on-premise um, vendors like the Hadoop vendors really don't um, they they don't actually provide ops for clients, and uh, you know they, they don't basically want to be in that business because it's um it's a business that's like basically it's 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 very easy to to compete with in that business, so it's very hard to differentiate yourself. And the way they've traditionally worked is they work with like each customer's own IT organization and they train them to do this kind of management. But that's pretty tough because you, you have to learn all this stuff that changes. For the software as a service uh, companies, like if you look at uh, Amazon or at Databricks or you know Google, any of these kinds of companies, the ratio of ops, you know, people to, uh, you know, to, to, to number of customers and so on is, um, you know, is much smaller and it's much more efficient because they have a lot of built-in software that makes it easy to manage, you know, multiple of these. So they get economies of scale, basically, from, from that. So, How does the Spark open source ecosystem compare to Hadoop's ecosystem? Yeah, so the, it, in many cases, they they actually overlap. A lot of software that works well um, with Hadoop um, c can also work well with Spark or has plugins. So, oh, sorry, I meant, uh, I meant more in terms. In, I meant more in terms of the the way that the developers interact with the open oh, source. I see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so there's actually, yeah, that's a good question. So th there are actually some things um, that are different in Spark, and some of them are because we, we wanted to do things uh, differently, base basically based on what we thought, you know, had worked well in Hadoop and what didn't. Um, so one of the main things that's different is Spark as a project includes, you know, this, this, this general computing engine, but it also includes a ton of the libraries built on top, uh, like SQL or machine learning or stream processing that in, in Hadoop these were completely separate software projects. And the benefit of this is, you know, it means that all the libraries work together um, in, a, in a nicer way. There's like opportunity to integrate them or to make a change that touches many libraries at once and makes them consistent. And they also get released on the same schedule. So you download one software artifact and it has everything. You don't, no one worries about having like a distribution of Spark. Like the, the only reason you need distributions of Hadoop is because there are these different parts projects that release stuff on their own different timelines and someone needs to actually bring together like a consistent set of them and, and make sure they work together, kind of like Linux packages, the same reason you have uh, Linux distributions. So this is one thing that I think, you know, makes it simpler and it does make the project bigger and like there's like a bit more management uh, you have to do of it, but um, I think we made it work uh, pretty well and we get a lot of the, the benefits um, uh, of this model. 
Um, and um, the second thing uh, that uh, that Spark did that I think you know this also happened in Hadoop, but I think we're spending um, a bit more effort on it. Um, is we also have a very easy, um, very standard interfaces to plug in new data sources, uh, new machine learning algorithms, for example, uh, and new sort of third-party packages uh, that uh, that make it easy to bring in stuff from outside. Any stuff that we don't want to include in the standard library, there's a pretty clear way to, to add it in there. And so everyone who wants to write one can uh, can see how that um, how that will plug in. And this is similar to like the way you have in um, in R, for example, you can easily install any package, and there are tons of people writing packages that uh, that are very easy to use. Yeah. Docker has been in the news a lot lately because it adds a layer of usability over Linux containers. What mm -hmm. what are the synergies between Spark and containerization technology like the Linux mm -hmm. containers that Docker uses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Yeah, so uh, we do see Spark deployed, um, uh, you know, increasingly often on um, you know on container-based platforms. So uh, we see people running it on on Docker or more more generally on some of these frameworks that do uh, you know distributed systems on top of Docker, like Mesos um, and uh, Kubernetes uh, and so on. So uh, I think that's the main way it's being used. Um, it's it's pretty nice. It's also pretty nice for local development. So. I, a lot of people use uh, use Docker to you know to, to package like say uh, Spark and like a bunch of libraries they depend on for local development. How do container platforms change the cost structure of a Spark platform? Hmm. You know, I think um, I I think basically. Uh, it's probably not an enormous difference because usually Spark clusters are designed to to have multiple applications, multiple users already, and they can already do they can already share resources between them through some kind of cluster manager. But what they offer is you can run Spark on the same cluster that you run a very different set of workloads on. Like say uh, you also run web applications, or you run like your build system, your build server, like Jenkins or something like that, and you you can you know move machines like when when you have machines that are idle that are not doing Spark stuff, you can assign them to other things. So I think the main benefit of this platform is, is how many different types of things can run on top of them and can now share resources uh, because of that. Much of the yeah. recent developments within Spark involve work on making rich standard libraries, and these libraries yep. include things like k-means clustering, sliding windows, yeah. machine learning. Talk more about the development of standard libraries. Um, sure. Yeah. So basically, we um, we we decided pretty early on in the project that we wanted to have um, very um, rich standard library that's built into it, uh, so that all these things are consistent with each other. Because uh, you know, as I was mentioning before, um, when we looked at the model in Hadoop, like people were building really great libraries, but they were building them separately, releasing them on their own cycles. You know, some of them weren't compatible um, with each other or were like hard to install alongside each other and that made it very hard for users to um, you know to, to, to quickly pick them up um, so we started you know we added uh, streaming I think um, probably like about three years ago and then machine learning uh, and graph uh, about two years ago and we've been continuing to add stuff um, since then and um, you know the 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 main focus is to have a really good API that's consistent across all the libraries and to add in things that we um, are sure that we want to support uh, long term. So like we don't want to ever add something into the library and then decide like oh there's no one who can maintain this or no one's really using this and and we have to remove it. So we've basically the one thing we focused on with them is stability. So we maybe we in some cases we are on the side of caution like. We only put in algorithms that are very commonly used, and that we're pretty sure we, you know, we um, we can continue to have later. But I think overall the models worked well, and we we've seen a lot of people um, start to use these. And you know, if 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 there are new things they want to do that aren't in the libraries, it's also easy for them to release uh, something else alongside it. And the libraries provide a standard template for like what the API should be like and and how to plug it in. You also mentioned that Spark's interface with R was a highly requested feature. Why is R yep. so popular for use with Spark? Yeah, it, R is just in general, um, it's uh, probably the most widely used 
language for statistics and and uh, data science. Um, so it, it's just it's um, taught in a lot of um, a lot of schools. Uh, most courses on statistics, you know, will teach you like a little bit of R if they have some uh, some computing element to them. And so a lot of people know it, and it has uh, just a, an amazing um, ecosystem of of packages uh, built in that you can you can just download and use. Um, so it was very natural to uh, you know to try to use that, and then. R is also well known for like you know it it it, it runs well on a single machine, but it it can't really use uh, multiple machines or even multiple cores on the same machine very easily. So there was a lot of room to take the stuff people are familiar with and run it faster at larger scale. So that's why we uh, we ended up working on it. Um, the support for it is still early on, but uh, but you know we see people beginning to use it, and uh, and there are also a lot of people contributing uh, patches to. Uh, to make the R support better and to add more and more functionality in it. So I, I'm excited, you know, to see how that continues. These people who are using R, are they mostly just like using R uh, as a raw interface to to whatever a data is available to them with Spark? Or are are these the same people that are building web front ends and the web front end communicates with R and the R communicates yeah. with Spark? Uh, they'd usually be different from those. The web front ends are more like the complete applications, like written in, say, Java or Python or uh, something like that. The R ones are more for exploratory, like data analysis. So you have some question you want to ask, and uh, you know you you want to to build a better model to predict, like uh, you know fraud or something like that. And you you try many different approaches, and R is very good at prototyping those. So it's more data science. Uh, than than like end to end applications. What are some other features that are highly requested in Spark today? Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a quite a quite a bit of stuff that people want to do. I think some of the ones I've seen, you know, most commonly asked for are um, geospatial data, so libraries for working with geospatial data, and same thing for time series. Um, so these are like a couple of things that aren't in the library already, but that would make a lot of um, sense to include. Um, and then there's always, you know, like there's always new things we can do to uh, to, to to add in more functions or to improve usability or performance or things like that. So um, there's quite a few of these, um, you know, that are coming out and we, we are working on them. Yeah. What assumptions about the future did you make when you created Spark? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, we, so basically, you know, um, I don't think there was anything too crazy, but there, there were a couple of things that were interesting. So like one thing, we, we definitely assumed that the, Users who want to to, to work with uh, you know, with big data sets, uh, there'll be more and more users, and they'll want to do it uh, more and more quickly. So they'll want to do a lot of stuff interactively or in an exploratory way, and less of like, oh, let's spend three months to build this application, and then it's going to be in in production for like a year. So people want what this means is that people will want higher level uh, programming interfaces that you know do a lot more stuff for them under the covers. So that's why we focused on high-level APIs and on languages like Python uh, early on and then R now that, uh, you know, are accessible not just to, like, hardcore software engineers, but also uh, data scientists or analysts whose main job isn't to write software. It's, it's you know, they, they have, like, some domain knowledge in a specific field. Um, so this was one of them. Um, and then we also did, you know, uh, uh, assume that in terms of hardware, uh, there'll be a move towards, uh, you know, faster uh, random access style memory. And it's not just RAM itself, which is, you know, what people uh, talk about a lot with Spark, but also Flash and uh, some of the new types of non-volatile memory announced, like the 3D X-Point um, uh, from uh, Intel and Micron, um, are great uh, technologies for something like Spark, where a lot of your data can be in a you know, in, in, in something that's much faster to access than disk. Uh, and then you have to manage that space and figure out, you know, what, uh, what needs to be in there, uh, how do I move it across between machines, and so on. So I find it interesting that Databricks uh, has a concerted focus on the data science area. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's, actually, it's actually really smart because um, data science is obviously a field that's exploding. Um, and I'm curious, what are your thoughts on, like, how big the the field of data scientists gets in the future because right now it seems like you know there's there's um 
you know, there's a lot of people who maybe are underemployed or they don't have the, they don't exactly have the technical skills to get a data science mm-hmm. position, but it's like, you know, they're qualified, technical, intelligent people, but their jobs are kind of like disappearing. And so these are like people that are well suited to learn data science in the future. So anyway, what are your, what are your thoughts on the data science space? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I think most, you know, um, uh, you know, most, most uh, uh, people who who look at this will say, yeah, d- data science is a very rapidly growing um, uh, sort of job title and job area. And, um, you know, we we do see a lot of people starting and we also see a lot of companies beginning sort of data data efforts where they would need data scientists. Um, you, one of the things to, to keep in mind also is it it's not like a completely new thing. You know, in some sense, a lot of the people that previously were considered, say, analysts or like, you know, uh, uh, data analysts, this kind of position um, are, you know, do the same kind of stuff we'd call a data scientist now. So in some way, it's also just a new label for something that people were already doing. Um, but I think the, the reason it will increase is because more companies Companies can easily um, store data now and uh, data about their business, and it's a it's it's a competitive advantage to use it for something. So uh, it, increasingly, you have to do that. Um, the one reason we uh, you know we want to focus on on them um, is you know in addition to, to engineers, which are obviously also very uh, important users of Spark, is because um, you know the data scientists um, uh, need. Uh, like basically they need easier to use tools to work even uh with stuff on a single machine but definitely uh with anything distributed across the cluster they they will not have the time um and patience to to actually you know spend a lot of time to build something uh complicated because they often have to answer a question you know within a few days and and move on to like the next question or the next project that they're doing um so that's that's why we we want to make sure that uh, what we're doing is good for them and the the cloud model from Databricks works really well for them because they don't need to install software, you know, manage it, configure it, all the stuff that's very time consuming and it's not like what they primarily um, uh, are experts at in their job. So it, it's very complementary that way. Do you think that the yeah. massive use of Excel is mm. a sign of uh, pent-up consumer demand? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think Excel is used for different stuff. So s- some of the things you do in Excel, it would not make sense to use, um, um, Spark for them. It's just for like, basically it's like simpler stuff and stuff on fundamentally on smaller data sets that like actually fit in, you know, in, in, in your, uh, one Excel spreadsheet. Um, but I think the use of, um, R and Python, uh, and, and, and software like that is actually, um, you know, does show this. So I think the people using that, could easily benefit from you know something like that that's faster, for example, even on a single machine, like something that actually uses multi cores and and you know can deal with data that's bigger than um, you know the the memory of the machine and stuff like that. So um, I, I think that's those are the most interesting ones. Do you have any examples for how Spark is being used in consumer domains like drones or virtual reality? Hmm. Um, in consumer domain. So I think the best examples I've seen, uh, there have been, um, um, like these kind of fitness, um, uh, tracking applications or wearables. Um, that's, um, that's, that's kind of the most common one I've seen. So, uh, we've, we've worked with a few, um, companies that have used that, um, for that. And, uh, you know, basically the idea there is like they, you know, it's more to, to collect, to, to look at data uh, across multiple consumers and then tell them like, hey, you know, um, you know, people like you um, should, we think it's better if they like eat this type of food or um, if, you know, we notice that, uh, you know, you, uh, you walk along this way when exercising, but it might be better to go along that way, things like that. Or even just telling you like, hey, compared to other people, you're like in the bottom 40% in terms of like, I don't know how many steps as you go up or stuff like that so just to, to tell you how you compare to, to others uh, that's the the main thing i've seen so, um yeah so so let's look at this this health company style example uh as mm-hmm. you know as an example we can we can talk about how they might hypothetically build an architecture so let's say they've got mm-hmm. all these consumers that uh, are wearing these health devices and this uh this data is you know 
constantly being uh, being sent to to the servers of yep. this company. How are they going to build? Uh, you know, how are they going to build this uh, a Spark system that ingests that data and does useful things with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So the first thing is to decide where to store the data. So there are several options there. So you can do, um, for instance, you can just store it in Amazon uh, S3 if you, if you want a, a, a cloud service to to store it in, which will be very easy. Uh, or if you want uh, an on-premise um, um, uh, cluster, you could you could have a Hadoop cluster, or you could have something like Cassandra, which is more of a um, you know it's it, it's also good for serving live queries. So it's, it does that's useful if you want uh, to query the data um, to do point queries on it in addition to just storing some logs. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, and then I think most people would begin with some um, some exploratory data science. So then you sit down in front of, uh, uh, say, uh, IPython uh, terminal um, uh, or like uh, one of, you know, like a notebook-like interface, like the one that we have um, in Databricks where you, uh, you know, you you load in a subset of the data, um, maybe into memory across the cluster, and then you start slicing it in different dimensions, like trying to answer, say, whatever question or hypothesis you have. Like, for example, if you think, um, you know, you can, um, uh, whatever, like say you can, um, you want to compare each user to other users in their neighborhood and uh, tell them like if, if they're very different from those in, in terms of their activity pattern or something like that. Um, so, you know, that's that's like one thing you try to do. Um, and um, once you, so that, that you do it interactively is very similar to using R now. So you type in some commands, you get answers, you know, you type in new ones based on them. And once you come up with you know, something there like, you know, say you want a, a model of like what, you know, which, uh, whether this user prefers like one type of activity or another. Um, once you've built that, the final step is to actually make a, a kind of a production application. And you could write a streaming application or you could write a batch one and, and you know, just like run it every night and maybe uh, email people in the morning or something like that. And hopefully in this case, you'd be able to take a lot of the code you wrote during exploration and we use that code, just spend some time to, to harden it, maybe optimize it or to run it in there. So I, when I was listening to that REC podcast, you mentioned something offhand about Spark having BitTorrent built into cluster management. Is oh, mm-hmm. Did I hear you correctly? So yeah, the BitTorrent is, is not in cluster management, but it is used for some of the communication operations. So like one of the operations is uh, broadcast where you have a value on like the master node and you need to send it to all the workers and sometimes these values are really big like um, for example in machine learning the value is the parameter vector for your algorithm and that's something that can be like uh, many like say 10 million floating point numbers so that's like a few you know like tens of of megabytes basically and um, we actually use a protocol similar to BitTorrent to send that across all the nodes in the cluster because you don't want them all just waiting on the master to, to push that data to them so yeah do you, do you know of anybody doing interesting things with uh bitcoin and spark um i've seen a few like um a few talks on it uh, but i yeah off the top of my head i'm not sure but um if you want i can try to find them um it's uh yeah it, it could be i think for analyzing the bitcoin blockchain and like the transactions is probably the best uh um you know place you try to use it yeah um, i mean yeah. the the the, uh, the next week uh of stuff after big data week is going to be bitcoin week. Uh-huh. So, so i'll i'll do okay. i'll do research on it. don't worry about it but i'm i'm yeah. I'll, I'll be very interested to see uh to see how people are using it so yeah, uh, i'll see if i can find a, any talk on it interesting yeah. that'd be great um so um how what has changed in the patterns that people use to access big data um, since, since you know uh, since over I don't know over, since the inception of MapReduce? Hmm. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think several several things changed. So I think um, first of all, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's a much wider set of people that want to use this data because it went from uh, like, oh, we have this batch job we have to run every night, like say this index of the web, you know, we, we just want to run this like one application to, oh, we collected lots of data and we have many questions and we want to ask those questions as quickly as possible and expose it to, you know, as many um, uh, users as possible within the organization who might use that to improve, you know, their own 
products or like whatever they're doing for their job. Um, so that's one thing. Like number of users has increased, and I think also the um, the the level of um, uh, timeliness uh, that people you know are looking for has has increased as well. So both in terms of doing things in a streaming fashion and um, and uh, just answering these interactive queries faster, not having to wait you know, 20 minutes to get back the answer for her query, but getting it back in 20 seconds and, and moving on to the next one. Um, what, is yeah. the, what is the future of Spark? Where would you like to see things go? Um, yeah, so I think we, you know, there's a lot of stuff, um, you know, still um, uh, uh, left to do in, in Spark and that we're, you know, we, um, I think all, all of us are excited um, to work on. But, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to see, um, you know, to, to see the growth of the, um, uh, of the standard library and really put together sort of the, uh, the, the most comprehensive library for, you know, doing data processing in parallel. And I think we already have, like, uh, I think the largest such library that's out there today, but I think there's still a lot of very cool algorithms and functionality, like I mentioned time series data, geospatial, and so on, that, uh, you know, people are figuring out how to do at large scale, and uh, that will be cool to include in there. Um, and then the second thing I'm excited about is the... Um, uh, you know, Python and R users and, uh, you know, uh, making this kind of um, uh, computing infrastructure um, available to more and more types of users that traditionally, like, would never have touched, uh, you know, MapReduce and it, it, it would be too complicated for them to do it. Um, so these are, you know, the things I'm, I'm excited about. Yeah. So one of the motifs, I know we're, we're running low on time, so I'll begin to close off, but um, one of the motifs in this show that uh, I, w- I want to build up is uh, this idea that people should be willing to uh, go out and work on their own projects, and if they see a need in the world for a certain technology, yeah. they should not be afraid to create it. So, And, and I think this is essentially what you did with Spark. So um, mm-hmm. do you have any tips or strategies on how to psychologically mm-hmm. prepare yourself to to write something that that is uh, you know essentially on on the front like you know somewhat revolutionary or somewhat bold mhm yeah um sure yeah so let me yeah let me let me mention a um, couple of things um so the the first thing is uh you know now with um, the the with the you know increasing like prevalence of open source software, but also with the really um, great sort of community tools around it, like GitHub and uh, you know Docker Hub, uh, you know the package index for for various things like Spark packages or R packages and so on. I think it's easier than ever to to create. Um, open source software and have other people see it and uh, begin to use it. So all that infrastructure is in there and it's possible for people to discover it. Um, at the same time though, uh, you know, if, if you want people to use it, um, it's very important to have you know, to start with something um, that actually solves a need. So, uh, and often the best way to do that is if you have that need yourself, and then you, you know, obviously you know that what you're doing is um, useful. And to also start by making it very small and very simple, so that everyone can understand it and and can kind of begin to use it. So, you know, when I look at open source libraries, if there's like something, you know, especially if it's something for work where I'm like, oh, should I? find an existing library for this or um should we write our own version of this uh, of this thing um it's it's always really nice when i look and it's like oh it's a, it's a pretty small library it's like a, you know like 5000 lines of code or something i look at it i can kind of understand it and i think yeah, even if we use this you know i'll understand it enough to be able to debug it and and to get up to speed quickly so that's uh, when when spark started out it was a very small project and for a long time you know a lot of people came in and said like okay, well, it's a little bit scary to deploy this, like, totally different, like, uh, you know, distributed computing engine. And, like, if it crashes, you know, my my production application is not going to work. But this is, like, small enough that I can understand it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to give it a try. Um, so this is, I think this is one of the things that, uh, that helps Spark and that new projects can do. Sometimes new projects try to do too much at once and... Um, you know, and, and, and basically it becomes scary for people to adopt them. Um, so the, I think these are the things, you know, make sure, um, you know, make sure it's easy to understand and, and make sure people can find it through GitHub or through other sources. Great. I love that advice. Um, well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, 
No, I think that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, chatting. Yeah, Matej Zaharia, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the Spark Project, so keep up the good work. 